the Lorena family there in the Philippines. We don't really support Brother Lorena. We don't uh, support him personally. We support the work that he's doing there. And what they're doing is they're training, or should I say they have a Bible college there in their church in the Philippines. He himself is a Filipino, and as a result of that, he uh, has tremendous influence with the people there. He trains them in their Bible colleges, and then in his Bible college, and then he sends them out to begin works in churches. Now, if we had sent an American missionary over to the Philippines, it would probably cost anywhere from probably three to $4,000 a month. Well, Brother Lorena is able to put uh, Filipinos on the field for about 250 to $300 a month. So we support missionaries. We support full-time missionaries. And this is the same situation that we need to see taking place in Africa. In uh, all the other, uh, if you go to uh, um, down in Africa, we see that. We see it in the Philippines. We see it in Mexico, ultimately. Uh, the goal is to eventually train nationals because they can do the work I mean, in such a uh, far less money. I mean, it just, we're wasting dollars. We are totally wasting money. And the goal is, is that we have to be able to train nationals to do the work. Uh, we, don't, we don't have to get visas. You don't have to come in and out of the country. You don't have to come back on furlough for a year. Uh, you don't have to do all those things. Can you imagine getting $5,000 a month for a missionary? You come back for a year, it just costs $60,000 so you could visit with churches. Again, it's a, it's, it's a needed aspect of the missions, but if we could get that one missionary to train up 50 other nationals, start churches, for the same amount of money probably, we could have 50 churches on the field. So it's important that we do it biblically and scripturally. And uh, that's why I really hesitate, to be quite frank with you. I, uh, there are some ministries that come around that have folks that were born, they're national citizens of other nations, they come and want American support. I really struggle with that. Because if I was going to start a church today, I could go down to any street corner, I could get a job, and I could start a church. And that's how Community Baptist Temple started. Okay, and that can happen in America with Americans. They don't need support to do that. They just need to go work. And as they work the ministry, God will bless the ministry, and they'll be able to take their vocation, so to speak, and turn it from this to this. Well, that's how it ought to work over in other countries, too. Now, again, that may not go according to the philosophy of many today, but that is how it ought to work, at least as far as I can see it, because it would save thousands and millions and tons of money. And secondly, I don't know about you, but probably more than likely a Filipino can reach a Filipino a lot easier than an American can reach one. And so, you know, we know that to be the case as well. So we're very excited about what Brother Lorena and his family are doing there but we're also extremely excited about the number of churches and the number of souls that have been saved through the years in that ministry. And so we want to continue to pray for him. We do the same thing for Brother Lorena that we're basically doing for Brother Runyon. And Brother Runyon's doing the same thing, starting churches there on the field with nationals. And so uh, I think in Malawi and some other places that he's in, I think the church planners are starting at, I, I'm thinking, close to 50 to to $100 a month is what they start at, full-time now. I mean, they're not working jobs. They're just doing the ministry. It's astronomical. It's unbelievable how little they need to function and to uh, ultimately do the ministry. So it's certainly a very profitable ministry, and we're grateful. I did get word back on Mrs. Nichols, Sandy. Many of you are concerned. I know many of you are in their class. Uh, when they got into her uh, stomach, 
they did not find any uh, tumor there. And so the, uh, the stomach looks good at this point. They uh, are convinced that the chemo has been working extremely well. And uh, the surgery only lasted about an hour. And it was scheduled for four. So it, it went extremely well. And the doctor came out and said, we were really excited about what we saw, or should I say not saw. Uh, and so that's good news. And so we're very pleased with that. And uh, continue to pray, as uh, Brother Hamilton mentioned. We certainly want God to continue to bless there and uh, do his work in her life and in her body. Well, anyway, let's take our Bible, turn over to the book of Acts, chapter 7. I have a few minutes to spare today because the message is probably only about 15, 20 minutes long. <laughs> you don't believe that, do you? It would be that long if you just read it. It's just that for some reason I wax uneloquent, I think. Not eloquently, but uneloquently. Acts chapter 7. I want to look at something tonight. I want to continue our lesson or message that I started a few weeks ago. I started a, a, a message that was entitled, Let's Learn from Stephen. And we noted part one a few weeks ago, and of course last week I was out of town. But uh, we're going to continue that today. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. My wife would have been extremely proud of me today. I had, uh, I had a salad for lunch. And then on the way home, I stopped at Sam's Club and got a hot dog. But anyway, <coughs> it's still not too bad. I mean, that's doing better. But anyway, Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. They stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Father, we come to you tonight. We're just asking you to speak to our hearts. Thank you for these that have gathered tonight. Lord, may it be a time of profit. Lord, I pray that you'd guide my tongue. Fill me with your spirit. You know my desire. Father, I realize, Lord, and so do you, that, Father, the word of God doesn't always, is not always received well. It can cut to the heart. Lord, we see evidence of that in the message that Stephen presented to this synagogue and council. Lord, tonight, help us to learn. May we be encouraged and instructed and ultimately inspired. Lord, we'll thank you as you speak to our heart tonight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we would mentioned, the council had procured a number of false witnesses in order to justify their desire to condemn and ultimately kill Stephen. Upon hearing these false charges, of course, Stephen is given an opportunity to defend himself, to respond, if you will, to the charges. And he begins to preach. There, before a hostile crowd, he 
with a face of an angel, the Bible says, addresses Israel's past in Egypt, their preservation in the wilderness, their prosperity in the promised land, their promiscuity toward other gods, and their punishment by Babylon. He mainly emphasizes their rebellion, however. He focuses his attention primarily on the rebellion. In verses 51 and 52, he says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? They have slain them which shewed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. Stephen was a very bold and courageous man, as we'll note later in our service, but he also represents a very powerful picture of what the believer ought to be. And I want to consider Stephen again tonight. Last, a couple of weeks ago, when we began to talk about him, we noted his qualifications. In Acts chapter 6, verse 3, we read there, Wherefore, brethren, look Ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, which we may appoint over this business. We realize that ultimately Stephen was one of those men that was chosen for this particular work. We learned a principle as a result of what we considered there. People are not to be enlisted to serve in a position based upon prestige prosperity, or personality, but instead spirituality and character. A position of leadership is to, be, is to only be awarded after a pattern of holiness and Christ-likeness is evident. So we learn that the qualifications that Stephen possessed are qualifications that every believer ought to embrace and exhibit in their life. Stephen was merely waiting on tables. The position wasn't to stand and be the pastor of the new church being started over in Samaria. He was simply being asked to wait tables. And yet the qualifications seem to so exceed even many of these present day preachers in our midst. God help us as men and women of God to understand our responsibility to be holy, upright. We noted his qualifications, but we also noted his participation. In Acts chapter 6, verse 8, again we read, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. He may have only been asked to wait tables, but this was a man of God whose great power in the Lord and the Holy Spirit was quite evident. He did tremendous miracles. God used him in a very mighty way. The truth is that God saved each of us to serve as well. He didn't just save Stephen to serve or Paul to serve or Peter to serve. He saved all of us to serve. Our purpose in life is not found in fulfilling our desired goals and dreams. We can take a sheet of paper and write on that sheet of paper our goals, our dreams, our aspirations. 
We can even self-define our own purposes. But in reality, reality, there is a purpose already discovered for each of us. It's found in the Word. God's Word provides the very purpose for our life and our existence. God Himself is the one who identifies the reason for our life here on earth. And as a result of that, we are to seek it out and to strive to please and fulfill the will and purpose of God for our life. He has already predetermined a path in which we are to follow. In Ephesians 2.10, he says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. See, salvation is not the end of our faith journey, but rather the very beginning of it all. Only the beginning. See, we have a high calling in Christ Jesus, and that high calling will always include bringing glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. If your life does not bring glory and honor to Christ, you're not fulfilling your purpose as a believer. I don't care how successful you are in business or how good of a mother or father you claim to be. If your life is not a light to a world that's lost, if Christ is not being exalted and magnified in your life, and He is not the one receiving the glory and honor for those good works then you are not fulfilling your purpose. You say, but God tells me to be a good husband, and I'm a good husband. But is God getting the glory for that? Or are you keeping your mouth shut and making people think you read a how-to manual written by Dr. Spock or some other psychologist? Maybe they somehow believe that you've been watching a little bit of, of Dr. Phil lately. But that's not what brings glory to God. What brings glory to God is when my actions and my deeds ultimately point to Him. And He's the one that's elevated and magnified because of it. That means at times we have to open our mouth and let people know why we do what we do. It's because of Him and what He has done for me on Calvary and the shed blood and the resurrected Savior and the power of the Holy Ghost in my life. That's how I'm able to overcome the alcohol and the drugs that I used to be bound by. That's how I can be a good father in the midst of a perverse generation. That's how I can have a pure heart and a pure mind and not be consumed with lust in this place, in this time in which we live. The world can tout those types of behaviors as well, but they don't give God the glory for it. Every believer has a heavenly calling that requires a holy conversation. We're to daily yield our hearts and our lives to the Master, which will enable Him to transform our lives and to do a work in our hearts. Now we move on and we noted, notice that not only His qualifications, His participation, but let's note His generation now. Let's note his generation. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 6 again, verse 9. And we pick up where we left off. Stephen was a man of God, and 
We noted his qualifications and his participation. He was very involved. But I want you to note his generation. If we're not careful, sometimes we get the idea that men and women before us did not have any challenges. That somehow it was much easier to be a child of God in their day than ours. And yet, obviously, in Stephen's day, as we can very clearly see, uh, it wasn't easy to stand for Christ. In Acts chapter 6, verse 9, the Bible says, Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia, and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man seeketh not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Stephen lived in a generation not much unlike our own. In this particular case, we're going to see that there are those who would lie in order to condemn the man of God. In the 1970s, scientists were telling us that we were on a direct crash course with another ice age. I remember I was in school at that time. And they told us how the polar caps were expanding and how ultimately we would be thrust into another ice age. As we moved into the 1980s, the ozone became a hot topic. We were going to deteriorate, uh, that that ozone was going to deteriorate to such a degree that over the next few decades, our skin would eventually melt. In the 20th century, we've been bombarded with so-called data proving that our world is warming. It's warming at an alarming rate, they tell us. They call it the greenhouse effect or global warming. Of course, there's supposedly mountains of evidence to support this claim. But then again, there was mountains of evidence to support the ice age that was supposed to have already taken place. There was also a mountain of evidence to tell us that the ozone was totally depleting and deteriorating. See, the world is always quick to produce evidence on the side of their agendas. You say, well, I think it's true. Well, you go ahead and believe it if you like. But they are really, really trying hard to silence anybody that comes up with data contrary to theirs. In our passage, this passage, the leaders of the synagogue were determined to provide undeniable evidence that this rebel named Stephen was proclaiming and propagating a very blasphemous doctrine. His doctrine undoubtedly would undermine a culture if left alone. His doctrine would upend the present government if it wasn't eradicated. You know, the Bible goes on to say that they suborned men which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Oh, really? You heard him say those things? 
I mean, what does the word suborned mean? Well, it means procured and possibly paid to provide false witness. So they paid people to lie about Stephen, to lie about the truth in order to condemn him and his practices and his message. So we're to understand, I guess, that the world may fabricate lies and present them as truth in order to discredit a believer then. I don't think anybody heard that. So I suppose we're to understand from all of this that the world may fabricate lies and present them as truth in order to discredit a believer. Well, that sounds familiar to me. I'm going to deviate now slightly, and I'm going to share with you something I found this week. I came across an article the other day that I found both intriguing and alarming. It addresses the issue of spanking. I want you to understand that before someone says, well, I thought we came here to hear about the Bible. Well, the last time I checked, the rod is still in there. Toronto Reuters. Spanking children can cause long-term developmental damage and may even lower a child's IQ. According to a new Canadian analysis that seeks to shift the ethical debate over corporal punishment into a medical sphere. That's alarming, by the way, folks. The study, published this week in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, reached its conclusion after examining 20 years of published research on the issue. The authors say the medical finding uh, have uh, medical finding has has been largely overlooked and overshadowed by concerns that parents should have the right to determine how their children are disciplined. While spanking is certainly not as widespread as it was 20 years ago, many still cling to the practice and see prohibiting spanking as limiting the rights of parents. Well, isn't it? I mean, isn't it? I, I don't understand, but doesn't that limit your rights as a parent? That point of view highlights the difficulty in changing hearts and minds on the issue, despite a mountain of accumulated evidence showing the damage physical punishment can have on a child, says Joan Durant, a professor at University of Manitoba and one of the authors of the study. Hmm. The damage physical punishment can have. Oh, you mean he can or she can, but not necessarily. Oh, I wonder what element has been identified by science that determines which children physically punished are ultimately affected negatively. I'm just wondering. Because it only can. It doesn't guarantee. It only says it can. I thought scientific evidence could be reproduced over and over and over again. I thought that when something was a scientific truth that you could reproduce it in every situation it always would come out the same. But in this case, we only it, it can have that effect on a child. I mean, could it be that element? Could that element be the one holding the rod or the belt that determines what child is negatively affected? 
I see. It may be the same argument as all guns kill versus who's holding the gun. goes on to say we're really past the point of calling this a controversy. That's a word that's used, and I don't know why, because in the research there really is no controversy. Hmm. I'm sure that that, I'm sure that in the research that she's noting, there is no controversy. I'm positive of that. Goes on to say this. If we had this level of consistency in findings in any other area of health, we would be acting on it. We'd be pulling out all the stops to work on the issue. Now I'm going to really say some things that I hope you can handle. Really, I said to myself? By the way, it was just a day ago that the California Supreme Court overturned prospect, uh, what's that called, something eight? What's it called? Proposition 8, which expressed the desire of the citizens of California to deny gays the right of equal status with homosexual couples as being unconstitutional. They said, you people can't make up your own mind and you can't say what your state will will permit or what it will allow in this area. For five months we allowed gay marriage. Therefore, you can't revoke it and you can't take it back even though you voted on it as a state and decided that you didn't want that to be considered marriage. Now, hold on a second. The lifestyle is being promoted today. And it's even being glamorized by our media. And yet it is one of the most detrimental and destructive lifestyles there are. The facts reveal that the homosexual lifestyle reduces life expectancy by as much as 24 years, according to a Denmark and other European country study. Oh, they've had gay marriage for longer than we have. And they have found that the life expectancy for gay couples is 24 years less than heterosexual couples. The risk of catching AIDS and other sexually transmitted diseases is many times higher among homosexuals than heterosexuals. The facts are indisputable, by the way. You can look them up anywhere you like. Even in their own literature, they allude to this. But they say that you still, you just can't address that issue because it is still their decision. But we want to protect our children from spanking. But then introduce them to AIDS, moral bankruptcy, physically destructive lifestyles as early as possible. Well, I have a real problem with that. I'm a little bit concerned about the lack of consistency that I see in people that are trying to take away a biblical process and procedure. You see, the world will lie to us. And they'll lie to others in order to condemn the believer and their belief system. Now that may not alarm you, but it bothers the life out of me. Because what I realize and what I know tonight is that in the end, you will not be permitted to spank your kids legally although you will always have a heavenly commission to do so, and obligation and responsibility to. But there'll come a day when they will tell us we cannot do that. Well, 
hold on, because I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Because to me it just seems there's got to be another agenda here. Durant and co-author Ron Ensom with the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario and Ottawa cite research showing that physical punishment makes children more aggressive and antisocial and can cause cognitive impairment and developmental difficulties. Wow, this is serious. Recent studies suggest it may reduce the brain's gray matter in area relevant to intelligence testing. It may do that. Note, can cause, or it may. Goes on, there are no studies that show any long-term positive outcomes from physical punishment. There are no studies, she says, that show any long-term positive outcomes from physical punishment. Oh, that's right. You mean other than the millions of emotionally grounded and successful people of a few generations ago? You mean the ones before Dr. Spock corrupted the minds of moms and dads with his book that said spanking is detrimental? I mean, let me just ask. I'm just curious. Everybody that's over the age, oh, no, not even to worry about that. Just how many of you have ever received a spanking in your entire life? Oh, my, do you see how... I, I, now I know what's wrong with all of you. This is unbelievable. No wonder we have such a dysfunctional people in church. <laughs> but there's, there's no studies that show any long-term positive outcomes. I suppose that one thing that we might want to look at is who do companies want to hire today? 22-year-olds or 50-year-olds? That might be a good indicator. She goes on to say, while banned in 32 countries, corporal punishment of children retains at least partial social acceptance in much of the world. Debates on the issue typically revolve around the ethics of using violence to enforce discipline. With the study, Durant hopes parents will start to look at the issue from a medical perspective. What we're hoping is that physicians will take that message and do more to counsel parents around this and to help them understand that physical punishment isn't getting them where they want to go. She also hopes that, here it is now, come on, we knew there was an agenda. She also hopes that countries that allow the practice, including Canada, will take another look at their child protection laws. Oh, wait a minute. Could this be the real agenda of the story? Canada is one of more than 190 countries to have ratified the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, a 1989 treaty that sets out protections for children. The treaty, which has been ratified by all UN member states, except for the United States, Somalia, and South Sudan, includes a passage stating that countries must protect children from, quote, all forms of physical or mental violence, unquote. Do you understand what happens there? If spanking is identified or labeled as physical or mental violence, 
then you will never have the right to do so and can go to jail for it. You realize? Have your children taken away from you. Be considered, I mean, get charged with domestic violence. Be fined, put in jail, have to go through anger management. You get to play the whole game. Just like you went out and beat somebody up for no reason. Like you just, I don't even want to go into it. He goes on to say, if we had two or three studies that showed that if you took 500 milligrams of vitamin C a day, you would reduce cancer risk, we'd be taking 500 milligrams of vitamin C a day. Well, I just cited a situation, and I think if you'll do any research at all on it, by the way, my, my, my computer wouldn't allow me on any sites that would show those statistics because I'm not allowed to look up certain things. So I had to just find what I could. I do have some information from uh, the uh, different groups like the uh, Red Cross and others that try to encourage people to handle things like that correctly. And their data even supports what I'm saying. She goes on to say, here we have more than 80 studies. I would say more than 100. Well, which is it? You're the expert, right? I'm not trying to be facetious, but that bothers me. Here we have more than 80 studies, I would say more than 100, that show the same thing about, uh, and yet we keep calling it controversial. I'm just kind of curious. I mean, if you're going to sell me a DVD player and you said it's either 80 or $100, you want it? I'd go, well, which is it, 80 or $100? I don't know if I want it until I know what it costs. Well, it doesn't matter. It's 80 or 100 no big deal, right? That's a big deal to me. I mean, you're supposed to know your own product. All I know is it seems to me that those opposed to this particular doctrine will do whatever it takes to take that rod out of our hands. They want control of our children. They do not want you controlling your own home and family. I'm going to tell you what you can believe and what you can't. And you say, that's a little bit cynical and a little bit crazy. Go ahead. Do whatever you like. But I'll tell you what, while Christians stay silent, our rights are being stripped. We run around saying things like, you're not allowed to spank your kids anymore, and so we don't do it. While all along you're protected by the Ohio's revised code. You're allowed to protect your children. That's what the law says now, but it won't be long where that will not be protected. It'll simply be abuse. We better step up. We better make our and God's word known, what he says. And I'm a little opposed to this whole thing because they keep calling it violence. If you discipline the way the Bible says to, you're not beating anybody according to the world standard of beating. By the way, the word, you, the word of God uses the word beating, by the way. Beat. It does. But the definition has been skewed and changed by the world. Biblically, you're not angry when you're spanking a child. You're not venting rage. And if you are, then you're not doing it God's way. That's all. Stop venting your anger. Grow up and be the adult. 
By the same token, the abuse of some shouldn't ruin it for everyone. And i got to believe that there's probably a lot of other studies thrown in here that aren't even just about spanking, but about violence toward children. I'd like to see some of that data. Again, the whole point being is, is that it appears that the world is willing to fabricate lies in order to discredit God's people and their practices. The last time I checked, the father of all lies is still the devil, too. You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Why should this surprise us? Why should an article like that surprise us? Why should the... the uh, uh, these these uh, agendas for alternate lifestyles being thrown in our face and rubbed in our no- just rubbing our noses in it. Why should that surprise us? It shouldn't surprise us as believers. We should expect it. And we get shocked over the things that the world does. Why in the world should we be shocked? But on the other hand, where are we to stand for God and His Word? Hey, that generation that Stephen lived in lied ultimately, so that they could kill him. So that they could exterminate him and his kind. So that they could do away with a message that said that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again. And that those that put him in the grave and those that put him on the cross were murderers themselves. They didn't want to hear that. And ultimately, with or without the false witnesses, they were determined to kill Stephen and shut him up. You know what? Sadly enough, if we take a strong enough stand, there'll be many that want to shut us up. But they're not shutting us up. The reality is they're trying to shut him up. See, it's not me and it's not you that the world's really upset with. They're upset with God, His Word, and His reality and truth. We're just instruments, but He's the one that really inflames their passions. The Bible tells us this generation would arise even today. In Proverbs 30, verse 11 through 14, it says, There is a generation that curseth their father and does not bless their mother. There's a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. There's a generation, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There's a generation whose teeth are as swords, and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. The generation that lived in Stephen's day lives today. There's no difference. But even as Stephen served, we are to serve. Jesus Christ Himself being our greatest example, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. How many will be in heaven because of you? How many? 
I can almost guarantee you, you know, when you look at the lives of men and women who have truly impacted our culture, our world, and have gone down in history as some of the greatest of all, almost always, they gave their lives for what they believed. It will not be a mediocre Christianity that will ultimately win thousands and reach a world for Christ. It'll be a radical Christianity. One that says it's worth dying for, not just living. I'm not talking about being some Muslim extremist. Did I say that? Yep, I said it. There are some Christian extremists too. A bunch of nutcases out there. They want to justify their hate by claiming it's godly or religious. There's nothing about this book that says that we're to go out and harm anyone for any reason. I'm not saying you can't defend your home and your family and the safety. That's not. That's not. That's another issue completely. But because someone doesn't believe what I believe, I have no right to force them to believe anything that I believe. I can persuade them. I can try to prove to them it's right. I can reason with them. I can encourage them. But I have no right whatsoever to force them to do anything against their will. And that's true with any believer. I grow weary when I hear horrible stories about Christians who, because they don't believe in abortion or they don't believe in some other kind of... I I don't like that group that's running around mocking and making fun of and pointing fingers at these these families whose children died in the war. I I really, I know that they... I'm glad they protect their free speech because we want our free speech. But boy, I don't in any way respect that group at all. They call themselves a church. I don't call them a church. I call them a bunch of radical nuts. If somebody hears that and says I'm crazy, well, then I am crazy, I guess. But man, I don't agree with that kind of stuff. That's just mere, that is sheer hate. We as believers should love people. We ought to embrace people. We ought to accept people. We don't have to embrace their lifestyles, but we can embrace them as people. They are human beings that God created, and God loves them. How dare we hate what God loves? We must work at it, because there will be opposition. And as we noted, Stephen, there he he stands being stoned to death. He's already been bitten upon, and he falls to his knees. Lay not this sin to their charge. Can you imagine? He tried to help them. He just wanted to give them the truth. He's trying to save their souls from an eternal hell. And yet, what they do, they lied in order to condemn Him. And there is He's dying with His final breath. cries out forgiveness for them. Lay not this sin to their charge. 
May God help us to respond to those who may dislike us, hate us, who even want to do away with us. May God help us to say, lay not this sin to their charge. May we just expect it. May we just be prepared for it. And love people the way Jesus loved people. And be willing to give our lives for what we know to be truth. Truth may be something that will cost us in the future. But it's a price worth paying. Because we do not just live on this earth. But we have an eternity to look forward to. Stephen's generation was not very upright. And our day isn't necessarily much better. But as believers, our character and our integrity should stand out among those in darkness. It ought to be a bright and a shining light. When people see you and me, they ought to see such a light coming from us that they can't help but associate it with Him. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And Lord, help us. In spite of our generation, in spite of the wicked culture in which we live, in spite of the damnable heresies that seem to be flowing from lips and lives around the world, may we stand as lights of God's goodness and grace. May we be holy in this wicked and sinful generation that many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. Father, we come to you. I thank you again, Father, for the opportunity that we have, Lord, to serve you. But, Lord, we have a responsibility and an obligation to love people. And in this particular case, like Stephen, even those that falsely accused and ultimately condemned him unjustly. Father, help us to keep our eyes and on Thee. May we not allow ourselves to be drawn back to earth, so to speak, and to operate in this flesh. But may we be Spirit-filled and give our heart to You. Maybe there's someone in the heart and the mind of one of these that's even here today that when they think of that person, that name comes to their mind, there's a feeling of almost bitterness or anger or hatred resentment, guile. Father, tonight, may that be confessed as sin. May we be cleansed in our souls so that we can be blessed in our lives. Father, may You help us to be honest with ourselves tonight. And Lord, yes, be prepared in a generation that will go to any length to discredit the believer, to make them look like they're foolish, unlearned, and ignorant. Go to any length to somehow discredit the Bible that they follow and the God they serve. May we still love them because You love them. And may we give our lives to reach them with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, thank You. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all